Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's cool fact of the day is that new research is confirming that animals actually have empathy. When higher animals like chimpanzees are distressed, they console each other by putting their hands in each other's mouths. Uh, Asian elephants do it by moving closer together and stroking each other's faces um, and genitals and putting their trunks in each other's mouths while chirping. It looks like the human ability to empathize comes from the part of the brain called the right supramarginal gyrus, which is located near cerebral cortex. Uh, If you're lacking in this area, a new study shows that compassionate meditation can rewire and rehabilitate your right supramarginal gyrus to increase your neurological ability to empathize with someone else. Or you could just do the biohacker way and put your hand in your mouth and start chirping. Better yet, put your hand in their mouth and start chirping, but we'll see how that goes. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's guest is an amazing guy, someone I've known for, I think, almost a decade. His name is Steve Omohundro. He's a scientist, a professor, an author, a software architect, and an entrepreneur, but he's also one of the leaders in the field of artificial 
intelligence. He gave a recent TED talk on bringing more compassion and happiness to the world through intelligent technologies. So this is not about replacing humans with artificial intelligence, but actually making us more human by using artificial intelligence, which is why I wanted him to come on the show today. He has a few little degrees like physics and math from Stanford and PhD in physics from Berkeley and stuff like that. So he's way smarter than I am. He's also, which makes him a total badass, trained in nonviolent communication, Travell's trigger point therapies, Bohm's dialogue, Beck's life coaching, and Schwartz's internal family systems therapy. In other words, this guy is a physicist, but he's not a robot zombie. It's really cool. Uh, apologies to my other physicist friends. Not all of you are robot zombies, just like a third of you. On that note, Steve, I'm really happy to have you on the show. You should have been on before now, and it's an honor to have you here today. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great. You were very instrumental in uh, my health journey, and so it's really uh, great to be, be on your show here. Well, one of the reasons that I appreciate you coming on is that you had a little bit of a weight loss experience when you went on the Bulletproof Diet. Uh, and in fact, you went on an alpha version of this when I was really first laying out uh, the the principles. And I can say thank you, Steve, because you're one of the guys who said, Dave, the way you've laid out this diet is unique. You should really share it because this way got through to me. What happened when you, you know, eliminated the toxic foods, cut the carbs, up the fat? I think it was about six years ago. Uh, I was you know, starting to get these symptoms that I now know were hypothyroidism. Um, I was getting heavier, kind of a brain fog, not feeling good, really sluggish. And I went to the doctors and they measured the TSH, which is the standard hypothyroid uh, thing. And mine was pretty normal. I said, nope, don't have that. Uh, you know, just, just eat a healthy diet, follow the food pyramid and you'll be great. Well, I did that and got worse and worse. I read books like Joel Furman and so on about the vegan diet. And I tried that and got worse <laughs> and worse. And then it's, at some point, uh, I, I spoke with you, and you said, what? That's crazy. Don't, don't follow the food pyramid. Uh, you want to eat more fat, not less fat. And I said, what? This is like total you know, revelation to me. And uh, you told me about the Silicon Valley uh, Health Institute, as it was at that time. Sort of going there, and oh, my God, it was revelation after revelation. So I decided to try it. And in the first month, I lost 20 pounds. All the brain fog went away. I was feeling great. This is amazing. Second month, lost another 20 pounds. And the third month, another 10 pounds. And it was, you know, just miraculous. Uh, I had tried a very low-carb version and decided at that point, oh, well, I should start adding the carbs back in. And I didn't really get the whole wheat thing at that point. And so I started, I wanted healthy carbs, right? So I, I started with oatmeal in the morning and heart healthy, <laughs> you, know, uh, um, you know, I want the whole wheat bread and so on. All the symptoms came back, like instantly. Yeah. And so it was like, oh my God. And so then I started really uh, going into your work and Steve Fawkes and, and uh, it had just been a total revelation and a, a trans major transformation. So you mentioned brain fog and you obviously make a living uh, like I have always done with your brain, not, not really with, uh, you know, going out and using your body as much as someone who, you know, is a professional athlete or anyone who's you know, doing physical work. So the difference in how you perform from a brain fog perspective, what did you, what did you feel when the brain fog turned off? Like, was there a difference in your ability to regulate emotions or was it more, uh, just I could think better, like like help people understand your perception of the cognitive changes that come from a high fat diet, not just losing weight. Oh, it was huge. Um, 
certainly an increase in clarity was the big thing. I mean, I was to the point where it was hard to form sentences, yeah. and you know, and you don't know what that. The, the normal medical uh, institutions don't help you in that at all. You know, they just say, "Well, you're getting older, and you know, this is a normal aspect of aging." That's, Here's some Prozac. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it's like uh, you just think, "Well, I guess this is what it is to get older." Man, this is really bad. This really sucks. Until you start. It, until it goes away, and then you realize, holy crap, this is how you're supposed to feel. And, um, you know, certainly increase in clarity. There's a kind of depressive mood that comes both with the, the mental thing and also with hypothyroidism in general. Um, you know, body temperature, all that kind of stuff uh, shifts. And the mental clarity, and then adding in things like your bulletproof coffee. Um, you know, when I was, I could never drink coffee. I was, you know, <laughs> the, the caffeine would, you know, I'd get very agitated and it wouldn't, it wouldn't work for me. When I made these dietary shifts, Coffee was like the elixir of mental clarity and, uh, you know, incredible increase in creativity and sharpness and ability to, to sort of do focused, uh, sustained work. So and then combining, you know, butter, MCT oil and, and coconut oil was an, another major, major uh, improvement in, uh, in these things. And none of this is in the normal literature. You know, and you, you talk to your doctor and, oh, that's saturated fat. Yeah, I would limit that. You know, uh, have you thought about margarine? instead of butter <laughs> uh, just I, insanity I, I like your your fat doctor voice <laughs> and, you know, the way they talk you know yeah. the doctors i think they get one afternoon in medical school about nutrition and the standard model is that ah oh, the food you eat doesn't really make much difference yeah. you know well, one of the things that set me on the path of biohacking was when i, I noticed that vitamin c made my brain fog slightly better and I told my physician at the Palo Alto Medical Foundation um, this, and he said, stop, it could kill you. And, and I said, what about Linus Pauling? And he goes, Linus who? And, and Linus Pauling, like two Nobel Prize kind of guy, 90 grams of vitamin C a day, all, all this. And I just looked at the guy. I said, you're fired. Like, like it just, I was so mad that this guy was so arrogant to tell me what these vitamins would do when he clearly had never studied any of the research and didn't know the pioneer in the field. And I, I just realized I'm going to have to do this myself. And in retrospect, and there were experts I ended up connecting with SVHI and ended up becoming one of the people who ran it. So it, it's kind of funny, but you had a similar experience and you, you hacked your way out of it, which is what people with a tech background will do when the symptoms get bad enough. Like, like you are kind of desperate, as I understand oh, it. Totally. Yeah. And desperation does it. But all right, so it, it helped your brain. And your brain is, is an unusual brain. You, you helped to create some of the world's voice recognition technology that's used today, right? Well, I mean, on the a research end, uh, yeah. I, was, I was involved with, like, Mathematica and uh, a lot of AI uh, systems for uh, speech recognition, learning grammars. Um, we built a lip-reading system, a uh, bunch of different projects like that. Yeah. So, so you, you've done some cool stuff, and uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pleased that your brain is back online because you're doing neat stuff. And speaking of neat stuff, let's switch to your TED Talk. Let's talk about artificial intelligence and how it's made you more compassionate and happy. Well, I'm not sure I would say it's made me more <laughs> compassionate and happy, but it's, it's certainly highlighted, um, I think, some of, my, some of my awareness about where society is going. That, um, you know, we're in a really interesting period where technology and science are doing amazing things every day. Like, you know, there's like five new amazing results coming out uh, that, you know, 
50 years ago, would each one would have been like, uh, you know, the highlight of the year. Today, they're coming out every day. I mean, just remarkable. And so we have these incredible advancements. At the same time, I think a lot of people are not doing very well. I mean, uh, mental illness is about a factor of sex up from what it was in 1938. Uh, marriages, you know, half of them ended divorce. So there's a lot of signs that our society and our technology are really not supporting uh, the the true compassionate happy nature of our of our population and i see technology is partly responsible for that and also as the potential solution to that that you know as, as I, it gets I, I know what you mean <laughs> sorry if you're listening in your car i just picked up my phone and pretended to check facebook i wasn't actually doing it okay go ahead <laughs> so it's a perfect example where facebook i think on the whole, I think it's actually a net positive in terms of connecting people. You know, I've connected to all these people from my elementary school and high school who I would probably never have seen if it weren't for Facebook. And yet, it's also become a surrogate and a substitute for face-to-face -face, uh, interaction. And, and uh, so we're in this sort of weird time. And I think the technology, of course, is going to continue on, uh, you know, getting much more, much smarter, much more powerful, much more pervasive. And so one of my interests is how can we guide it so that it encourages the best of humanity rather than sort of dehumanizing us? Well, a lot of people don't know this, but my concentration in uh, my undergrad studies was in decision support systems, which is marketing speak for artificial intelligence, because we learned a long time ago that artificial intelligence is terrible marketing because we've been saying for like, whatever, 40 years that humans will be as, or that computers will be as smart as humans. It never seems to happen. So everyone laughs at it. So what is artificial intelligence actually the way you're using these words? Like, how do you define that term? Well, so artificial intelligence is basically trying to make computer systems that make decisions that are, you know, meet some goal that, um, and then like you say, the actual algorithm, what's really underlying almost all systems today, was invented by John von Neumann in the 1940s, and it's rational economic decision-making. And it's, in its, you know, abstract, it's very, very simple. If you understand the environment that you're in, uh, all it involves is imagining the different actions you might take, seeing, you know, simulating what those actions are going to lead to, and taking the one that leads to the outcomes that are best for you. Um, if you don't know what the environment is, then you need to try it, see what happens, and improve your model of the environment uh, as you take these actions. And that's where machine learning, which is sort of the buzzword of the day, comes in. These are exactly what you do in biohacking where the system is your own physiology or your own uh, mental uh, capabilities and learning, well, if I take, you know, vitamin C, it does this. If I take vitamin D, it does this. And though these two interact in this way, it's a systematic way of proceeding forward. AI systems are basically encapsulating that procedure as algorithms. Uh, very, uh, very well put. I, I love it that you live in that world every day. Explaining biohacking to people is tough because I, I really do have a background in computer security. And I think about, oh, you tell me I can't do it. And the first thing I'll do is, well, there's like 15 ways to break that system because that's how you, that's just how you think if you come from that, that sort of a background. And it's not that you're going to break it. It's that you're looking for weaknesses and things you can exploit and looking it just it, it's a different lens to look through the world. When you look at it as an artificial intelligence expert, I get a feeling that you have a lot of that same biohacking angle because you're looking at like systems optimization problems. Absolutely. OK, when you're optimizing a system, 
how do you apply that to compassion? I mean, you have an amazing array of training in psychological and therapeutic techniques, which is unusual for an artificial intelligence researcher. So how do you bring the system of the thinking you do into compassion, which really isn't about thinking, it's about feeling? Like, what's the connection? I totally agree. And I think that's one of the challenges that our society is facing today, that we tend to optimize what we can measure. And today, the kind of thing we measure is things like gross national product, or a company you know, is a profit-maximizing entity. And the decisions you make in trying to maximize profit or productivity tend to not necessarily be aligned with human happiness and you know, human spiritual growth. And so we end up with um, you know, kind of dehumanizing elements of a lot of, of our societies. The country Bhutan, on the other hand, uh, tries to measure gross national happiness and that leads to a very different set of governmental priorities and uh, it, it plays itself out in in a different policy and so i believe uh i'm sort of a big fan of robin hansen's futarchy model i don't know if you've heard of that i haven't is, so most po political arguments about policy are all about oh i think taxation is good oh i think taxation is bad and um it's all about what levers do you turn rather than what outcome you're trying to achieve. What Robin Hanson says is, no, we should have the populace voting on what do we want our world to look like, and then have experts, or he's got other mechanisms, to figure out the best way to get to that outcome. And so, you know, I think that's the, the key in, in rational economic thinking, is to separate out what is your goal, and then what's the best way to achieve that goal. It's, it, it's awesome to have it presented that way. It's the same for any complex system, including food production, right? The, the goal when I'm producing something is I want food that makes you feel and perform amazingly well, which doesn't mean it tastes good. It doesn't mean it's cheap, which are the two outcomes that every food company eventually comes down to. Like, how do I make it taste as good as possible for the least amount of money? And that's it. Uh, so I voted, at least in my own little world, for that other outcome. And what you're proposing is we could do that for most of our economic and political decision making say we want to optimize the system for these outcomes and allow the system to create itself basically absolutely and so that says that what we measure and what we sort of state what vision we hold for where we want to end up is absolutely critical because if you pick the wrong goal you're going to get stuff that you don't want and so my ted talk and a lot of the ai things has been about if you just build an ai system that's trying to optimize for something like maximizing profit it's going to do things that you really don't like. And so um, being very clear about what kind of world we want is, you know, like you're doing with around food and nutrition, you know, people are, and you're discovering, people are willing to spend enormous amounts of money to have better health. I mean, for on the individual level, uh, health and mental clarity is so much more important than the typical measures that, uh, you know, a food uh, agra company is going to use in making its decisions. I am definitely on a personal basis willing to spend much more on food if it means I'm going to save money at the doctor's office later because I won't have to go there, and it means that I'm going to have a higher quality of life while I'm eating the higher quality diet, uh, at, at the same time, even my goals for building Bulletproof have been like, I want to use Bulletproof to increase the reach of what can happen when your prefrontal cortex is turned on properly by food. So one of the things I've learned is that the amount of money that's spent distributing food far outstrips the cost of producing food. So the stuff you're buying for $8 at the grocery store 
probably cost less than a dollar to produce. And it's all the systematic inefficiency because we optimize the grocery distribution system for profit at three different tiers instead of for delivering high performance food that's nutritious and free of toxins to people at a reasonable cost, which would be nice. And it's one of the reasons that e-commerce is really cool because margins can be far lower there, but you're buying from the producer. So all of that extra money that would have gone to the distributor and the wholesaler and the grocery store, all of those go into making the food and then paying a shipping company to get it to you. So you end up getting a higher percentage of your spend going into the food because the system's optimized for that, which is kind of cool. I totally love that. And I think, you know, the internet is at its base the most unbelievably democratizing yeah. technology that has ever existed. And so people individually are discovering what's really important to them and they don't have to follow the marketing messages anymore. Yeah. You know, the, the paleo sphere and the, the, all the work that you're doing is bringing an awareness. Uh, to, I would say, I'd be interested what percentage of the population you think is now kind of aware of this new way of thinking. That's a really tough question. I don't know the answer to that. Certainly a lot of people have heard of paleo, but they sort of think it means like order steak. Right. And yeah. you know, if you're eating industrially processed steak and margarine, it's not actually paleo. And even a lot of paleos are eating poor quality meat and don't know why it works for a little while. It doesn't work as, as well. Uh, I do feel like we've reached some sort of a tipping point where enough people realize that, well, there's something I can do with my diet that's going to change not just how I look, but how I feel that it's gonna be really hard to go into the doctor's office and have the doctor say, oh, it doesn't matter, like, you know, have some potato chips. Like, people realize, well, wait, I don't feel the same when I have those, and then I have all these cravings. So there's just a little bit of, of mistrust of receiving nutritional advice that doesn't work. And that's yeah. all we need, is for people to start paying attention to the system of their body. What do I put in here, in my stomach? What does it do to my brain? What does it do to how I feel? What does it do to my muscles? And it's not that hard to tease it out. And there's things like the Bulletproof Diet Roadmap, big book launch in December, uh, where I'm really hoping to educate a lot of people with, you know, with just knowledge. Like, hey, here's a framework for thinking about it. Now go hack yourself. Yeah. Oh, I'm really excited to see that. That your uh, better baby book. My uh, my brother uh, had a, a son uh, in back in the end of December, and I gave him that book, and they studied it and read it, and oh, I think awesome. it had a big impact on the, the pregnancy. The, the epigenetic effects. You know what what you eat now affects the next generation. At least if you haven't reproduced yet, uh, it's, it's huge. And, yep. and that book was there for that reason. To you know, I. I I helped Lana write it, my wife Lana, uh, and actually use the principles. But if you're on the Bulletproof diet or you've made any positive change in your nutrition, uh, and then whether you're planning to reproduce or not, if you do, <laughs> you may find that your kids are healthier and even your grandkids are healthier. So it's kind of like the biggest investment you can make or the smallest investment you can make with big returns. Huge. No, I don't know if you've been following um, uh, the, the recent studies of the placenta, which they used to think was sterile. And now they're realizing, no, it's got a whole microbiome that starts off the microbiome of the child. And so uh, I've been sort of, there's this whole hologenome uh, way of looking at, at uh, the human as really an ecosystem of bacteria, viruses, and human cells. And you know, we're, the simplistic sort of medical model is uh, turning out to be way, way inadequate for the kinds of things that we have to, the choices we have to make. It, one of the, the areas I explore in the Bulletproof Diet book is what happens when you have germ-free mice. Mm. So these are mice that have no bacteria in their gut at all. And what's cool, you can feed them anything and they stay lean and thin. Huh. Like, like they're 
bulletproof. And then you, you give them a little bit of, of normal wild mouse bacteria and they get 60% body fat in 14 days. Wow. And so part of what's going on is that we've developed this symbiotic relationship with all these bacteria in our bodies. Um, they, they also have hacked our system. So when the bacteria make neurotransmitters, well, you already had a neurotransmitter manufacturing system in the body that was perfectly good. So sometimes these bacteria are not you know, directly making toxins, but they're causing behavior change or causing hormonal changes in you for their interests, given that you carry them around. So it's, it's such a complex system that uh, thinking of things like a hacker, I'm like, wait, there, someone's already come in and someone's already penetrated the system and they're already putting their control tentacles into it the same way we would if we broke into a computer system. So bacteria can be really good, they can be really bad. What controls the bacteria? The environment. So you hack the environment, which hacks the bacteria that have already hacked your system. And it's so cool and so complex and we know almost nothing about it. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. I mean, and, and beginning to model and understand that complexity um, lets us make the choices that are actually going to lead to the outcomes we care about. And it's probably sort of kind of going to take some artificial intelligence for us to understand that level of complexity, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. One thing I'm excited about is a whole bunch of uh, Google just came out saying that they're putting a lot of money into um, AI systems to model health measures. And there are all these, there's a whole quantified self movement of yeah. the kinds of things you do of, of measuring, um, you know, very inexpensive measures of what's going on and use that to learn, you know, what is the dynamics of this particular person's uh, physiology and how, how can they best optimize it? I also just picked up this system. It, it was a couple hundred bucks on Kickstarter. I want to say it was called LAPCA. And it's three sensors that work with the iPhone. One is a radioactive particle counter. One detects nitrate levels in food. And the other is temperature and humidity. And you plug it into your iPhone and you can stick a probe into a tomato or you can wave the thing around. Oh, the other one's EMF. Wow. But the cool thing is it all uploads to the cloud. So you can see a global map of nitrate levels in different regions of the company in produce versus wow. EMFs or it's stuff like that. It's just coming online. But when you get the Google level of visualization and the ability to bring all that stuff in, I think the AI stuff that you're working to pioneer is going to help us realize, wait, there's something going on here that we didn't know about. And the question of what is it now that we can measure it is going to shed more light on what it means to be human than we probably have any any thought of right now. Oh, I totally agree. I think it's also going to bring a level of transparency. Like there's a horrifying video about what's going on in Fukushima, yeah. where in Japan, you know, they're kind of covering up what the levels of radiation are, but individuals are getting little radiation meters and they're starting to create maps and you coordinate that information on the, on the internet. Suddenly it opens up and it becomes transparent what's really going on. I think that's going to happen in every sphere of human activity. It, it is. And it's going to be really tough for big companies and politicians to say no when there's just giant amounts of data. So we'll probably face more censorship, things like that, but whatever that can happen. One example of uh, sort of the evidence of the increasing interest in this is, you know, Whole Foods is, is a, a company which is devoted to trying to meet what people think is healthy, some of which they have is healthy and some, you know, they still sell a lot of crap. Uh, but it's fascinating to watch the gluten-free aisle. Um, yeah. started, you know, a few years back when I was first trying to eat that way. It was like one little shelf and it was not very good stuff, untasty. 
over the years, every year, it basically doubles in size. And now in the big Whole Foods, it's like an entire aisle of gluten-free stuff. And lots and lots of people, you know, a lot of restaurants now mark things, oh, this is gluten-free or it's not. Uh, even though gluten isn't probably the right measure, but at least it's a sort of proxy. For, yeah. Yeah. I, I always wonder, like, okay, what what's in there? I, I was at a buffet at a conference recently, which was really well put together to try and support everyone's weird nutritional requirements now that we're all hacking ourselves. And it's like, this contains none of this, this, I mean, well, what's left? Is it made out of like marshmallows? Like I have no clue what I'm putting in my body, but I know what I'm not putting in there. And right. that makes me a little nervous. So it's like, could you just list all the chemicals and other weird crap you put in there that you think is gluten-free? <laughs> um, Virgin Atlantic, actually, I, I checked off a uh, gluten-free on the menu option uh, and I managed to get the upgrade. This was like one of the first times ever to get an upgrade to fly in like the purple upper class section. I, I was like, ooh, I'm, I'm swanky. And they give me this gluten-free muffin thing and and it's actually made out of wheat starch and you turn the label over and it contains 60 milligrams of gluten but it's still gluten-free because it's like less than a gram of gluten so it didn't count oh i'm like God. this is an immunostimulatory thing this isn't unbelievable so I, I was just like they tried it said gluten-free in big letters but it was a lie yeah. and like what we're gonna have to deal with that but also what's gonna help us do that visualization of data and collecting the data, seeing it's there. And as we get things like Google Glasses and all, they'll be able to look at that and go, warning, you know, these 15 websites say that's not gluten-free, but these yep. five manufacturers say it is. You know, the, the consensus vote via an AI system is that you have a 70% chance of feeling like crap if you eat it. Okay, That's what I think of when I look at everything is exactly that algorithm, but maybe I didn't read all 15 websites. But I want a computer to do it so I can be like, that's a bulletproof meal. That meal is like here on the spectrum because honestly, it's never going to be perfect and it's never going to be perfectly evil. It's always going to be somewhere in the middle. I just want to know where it is. So I'm like, well, if, if I'm giving a speech to 5,000 people and it's going to change their lives if I rock it, well, I'm sorry, I'm not eating a 40% bulletproof meal. <laughs> I'm having my coffee and I'm going <laughs> to go on stage because I know what's in there, like three things. Totally, totally. I don't know if you've looked at Amazon's new uh, Fire Phone. It's got four cameras on it, and it's set up oh, wow. so you can look at any product. And their their goal, of course, is to recognize the product and then show you it on Amazon so you can buy it there instead of wherever you are, happen yeah. to be physically. We, we but, have to complete the war on small business. That's how to complete it. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that same technology can be co-opted in exactly the way you say, where it, you know, you have your own personal AI that knows exactly what's good for your body and what's not. You show it anything you're about to eat, and it tells you, hey, buddy, you know, like you say, don't eat that now. <laughs> so... It's going to be a very interesting next five years because of all this. And, and that brings us closer to another topic. Um, what's your take on transhumanism? Well, you know, so that's the idea that uh, we can and should change the human body. And I personally tend to be fairly conservative. So when it comes to, you know, curing disease, yeah, totally. When it comes to enhancing capabilities like in the way you do, Almost all of those seem good. Some of them push the edge a little bit. Like, I don't know if I want to be the first one to do the transcranial stimulation, you know, that kind of stuff. A lot of the people in that world, like especially the extropians, I don't know if you've heard of yeah. them, they sort of view it as a positive, you know, that change is good for change's sake in a way. And um, I think it's great that they want to explore in that way. Whether the whole – my worry is that we change too rapidly. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really worried about that too. Right. If, if you're just listening, I, I'm putting electromagnetic coils on my head while we're talking. Um, 
And so I guess the question is, how do we determine what changes are like, yeah, this is a, a great improvement that's making us better. And what are changes like, let's say you have the, the capacity or ability to turn off your conscience. And uh, to be a good CEO, well, you turn off your conscience so you could make those hard decisions. You know, that could send humanity down into, you know, a terrible direction. And so how do we make those choices? And I worry a little bit, too. So I, I'm in the transhumanist camp somewhat. I, I don't believe there's any necessity or I'm not even that interested in uploading my consciousness to the Internet so I can shed my human body kind of thing. I I you know, I, I like the idea of making an artificial system or an intelligent system that that acts on my behalf as an agent so I can get things done that I want. But that's not ever going to be me, yep. uh, not in my understanding of consciousness. So, like, cool, I could make 52 copies of myself running on different machines that, like, do things that I like. Great. Uh, that's kind of like having an assistant. Right? It, it's cool. Yeah, I'm totally with you there. And, and then there's like upgrading your existing capacity, like overclock your CPU before you throw away your, your hardware. So I'm uh, having run a, a medical lab testing company that looked at immune reactivity to implants. I can tell you a lot of people are walking around with implants that are triggering autoimmunity right now and they don't know it. So before I'm going to put something with electromagnetic fields, which also mess with biology in ways we barely understand, Plus a coating of some sort that's likely to also cause an immune interaction. Like, really? These are risks that are not worth taking unless maybe you lost your arm, in which case, hallelujah. But there's yeah. no way I'm taking my arms off and replacing them with robot arms, uh, not for a long time. And then the risk that really scares me the most is, you know, I come from the world of security. Well, we just found out that the NSA, thank you, Edward Snowden, for doing this, weakened the cryptography algorithm used by almost everyone so and they did this very early and very sneakily so that they could basically always break stuff that was supposed to be unbreakable. Well, if you put something in that interacts with your brain or interacts with some part of your body and you're going to trust what what company that made the hardware and what company that made the software, yeah. we do sneaky stuff. And man, I am really not willing to do that. And then you get a virus and the, the new implanted visual thing you have. This is William Gibson's idea. It gets a virus that shows you know, basically porn ads all day long until you go crazy and you kill yourself. Like, if we put hardware in our bodies, there is a real risk of that sort of stuff happening. And I don't think it's going to be very pretty. I won't be the first to sign up for it, but I will be the first to absolutely amplify my cellular biology and let my brain do everything it's capable of because we've barely touched it. Yeah, yeah, I'm totally with you. And how you find that line, like, you know, everybody uses cell phones. You know, are those really safe? Do we know? I just was reading about apparently there are people all over the world that hear the hum. They hear this low-frequency sound that appears to be due to low-frequency radio waves. Mm -hmm. But nobody really knows what it is. It doesn't seem to have, you know, be, be measurable. And yet there are, you know, people all over the world who are experiencing this thing. And so do we really know enough to make fundamental changes? And how do we know, how could, do we have certainty that, that we, we have enough understanding to, uh, to enable something like that? I think that we have made some major, major experiments on people without really knowing. Even our choice of electrical uh, carrier systems, the the frequencies that we use to transport power over long distances have biological effects. I've seen them in my living room. I've measured them. Yeah. I've changed people's biology in a very painful way, actually, by using shaped frequencies from across the room. So in, in my world as a biohacker, 
sorry, you don't have to touch someone to mess with them. And you should know that you can aim microwaves at people and cook them. So these other little cellular signaling and biological signaling things, those are the areas where people say, well, you know, this food won't hurt you. There's only a little bit like mold toxins is an example. Right. So sorry, they cause damage to your DNA. There is no like hormetic safe dose. Like you, you, every little bit you get adds up and they actually affect your performance long before they kill you of cancer or something. So the same thing may or may not be true of EMFs and we don't know. And some people now are saying, well, there's no evidence. Sorry. Like there's tons of evidence. If you look around, it's, it's there and there's enough evidence that I wouldn't say it's safe. And there's enough evidence I'd say it's prudent to minimize exposure, but I didn't put my cell phone in airplane mode before our conversation. I'm not paranoid, but my yeah. Wi-Fi is unplugged because I'm not using it, right? Yeah. The cautionary yeah. principle makes sense. Do you use Wi-Fi? Yeah, I do. Okay. Is it on when you sleep? Uh, in, a, in the other room. Okay. But, uh, but I do leave it on, yeah. And uh, it's funny. I, I had a, a girlfriend who really hated the electric clock being next to the bed. And I was like, ah, that's bullshit. What, what can this be? <laughs> and took it out and it was amazing the difference huge huge difference Uh, on one of your charts you rate microwave ovens as being an undesirable way of cooking and uh, some of my kind of hyper rationalist friends were looking at your chart this was early on and you know kind of skeptical like who is this guy what's he saying what do you mean microwave ovens are bad how can that possibly be bad and so i did a little google search and sure enough all these papers about the microwave frequencies are absorbed by certain critical proteins and it damages them. Yeah. And so, you know, who knew? I didn't, certainly didn't know that. One of the things that, that sucks is that we are, we are terrible correlation engines for understanding long-term effects from an action that we did. Just biologically, we suck. I, I used to call myself a walking event correlation engine because all of the work I did on early internet infrastructure was always like, there's all these parts we don't know what it is. And somehow you can synthesize, you know, if you had to pick in, uh, what's probably causing the trouble, it's probably this, but it comes from synthesizing all these weird things. And because of my own health problems, I became pretty good at, at looking back in time and understanding, oh, this happened two days ago, but that's why today I feel like a zombie. It wasn't what I did an hour ago or a day ago. It was two days. Yeah. And when we get to like a month or when we, we wake up in the morning and we feel cranky because of what we had for lunch, it, it's almost overwhelming. But you're an artificial intelligence guy. How are AI systems going to fix that kind of a problem around correlation? Well, one of the things AI systems, even today's pretty putsy AI systems, are great at looking for correlations and structure in data. And they're able to handle massive amounts of data. And so the whole big data movement is just exploding here in Silicon Valley. And, you know, if we measure the inputs, um, those systems will be very good at finding those kinds of patterns. And so I think that's a very, very helpful a uh, helpful thing. Uh, we have to measure that, though. Like, I, I've been, uh, uh, one of the things that you promoted a lot is the issue of mold. And you don't see much about it at all yeah. uh, in the normal media. And yet I've had several friends for whom this has been a major uh, health issue in their lives. And thanks to you, they were able to discover it and fix it. And it totally changed their, their experience, the quality of their life. And yet nobody talks about it. Nobody knows it. You know, if there were a mold issue here, most people would have no clue that that was what was happening. It's so frustrating. Uh, one of uh, the Bulletproof employees, uh, a, a good friend, our personality changed overnight. She moved into a new place and, and just got emotionally unstable and wow. really angry and, and would cry. This is a, a woman who really doesn't cry uh, very often that I've ever seen, kind of at, at, at a drop of a hat. And 
I, I was like, there's mold here. There were nosebleeds and some other common symptoms. Like you moved into a place with mold. And it's like, well, it's a, it's a new apartment in a professionally managed building. So she looked and behind the, the cabinets in the kitchen, there was black stuff coming out. And I put her in a hotel that night. And lo and behold, within three days, she was back to her normal self. Wow. And But if you don't know the correlation possibility, all you know is like, I feel like crap. I feel like I've been poisoned. You know, everything went to hell. And, and that's why I'm, I'm filming a documentary on toxic mold. I'm bringing some of the world's top experts in, as well as a bunch of people who have been affected, not to tell everyone everything's moldy, you have to be afraid, but to say, look, this is as important as asbestos or lead in paint. It's yeah. that important and it's not known. So I want to push that knowledge forward because 28% of people are permanently disabled by it, but the rest of us just feel like crap. We get sick and we get cranky and we yell at people. It, how would artificial intelligence do that, though? Like, I, I want systems to do this so we don't have to do it. Well, I mean, the, the, the challenge is getting the inputs. And today, you know, it's pretty much you've got to have sensors. You've got to have some person recording that. And so if you don't know that something might be an issue, you know, you're not going to be recording that data. As we move forward, you know, the world is getting more. Sensors are getting really, really cheap. And for better or worse, they're going to be, you know, cameras and the, the kinds of sensors you're talking about, you know, uh, all over the place. And so that will enable us to kind of get a better handle on it. Um, I mean, we are facing, like, I just, just looking at the autism curves. Oh, yeah. Uh, autism is exponentially growing. We're 50 times more autism cases today than uh, in 1975. And nobody seems to know why or what that's related to. I mean, there's all these random theories, but... There's a, a guy named Roy Bittman who wrote a book called The Brighton Babies, uh, which is very much in line with the Better Baby book, um, but it's like 500 pages. It's sort of like the wow. Gary Tobbs version of the Better Baby book, um, which I, I really respect. And I'm supporting Roy in his new vision called One in Two, because if the curve continues, one in two children born in 2025 will have autism. And I wow. spoke at a big autism conference recently because this is near and dear to me. I, I, I care greatly about it. Uh, and I created the program for my own kids because I was very concerned they would have it given my own background. Uh, so, all right, you're a leader in artificial intelligence. Like, what are you going to do about this? What's the data that we can get? Because we're not going to get sensors about this, but are we plotting clusters of autism? Are we looking for environmental variables there? Uh, like, what, what would the AI approach to solving any chronic disease like that look like? Well, I mean, in the case of autism, the, the, the theories that I've heard, that, or the, the one that seems most um, uh, believable to me is vitamin D deficiency in the mother yeah. um, seems to lead to that. And so the trouble is, you know, once the child is born, you don't have access to that data anymore. And so, so unfortunately, I think in that particular one, it's probably going to be a longer term process where as we start um, tracking and recording, you know, what are the, the levels of all the important uh, metabolites? and vitamins and, you know, everything uh, in a mother and, and what are the consequences down the line. Um, so first getting that data, I think, is, is the, a stumbling block at the moment. Um, what data do you collect? I mean, do you use specific tools that you recommend for people? Um, do you have an iPhone app? That's cool. Like, what, what's your deal there? Well, you know, I, I have a very funny procedure. I take a lot of different supplements. Um, yeah. And... Um, I don't think there is a very systematic way of choosing what supplements to take today. And so I did a kind of weird approach, which is I would take a single supplement and just let my body see how it felt. And then I would try a different one and a different one. And then I would just sort of use intuition. What did I feel like I needed today? 
hoping that I'm sort of training my own system to discover the regularities. Like, oh, when I take this, I feel this way. And when I need this, you know, I do this. I, I don't have a, a systematic I, way of knowing whether it's success. Succeeding. I thought you were a scientist, Steve. Come on. You got to do the same thing the same way every single day. Oh, wait, is each day and what you're doing a different variable? Uh, I started my path of taking vitamins and I, I, you and I probably take similar amounts. I take a lot of vitamins. People videoed me taking handfuls of them. And, and like, especially when I travel, I'm going to be resilient. I'll take everything that I think works. But I started out with like a rigid spreadsheet. It's like, okay, one of these, two of these, one of these, two of these. And the problem, especially the problem with multivitamins, where they mix all this stuff together, is that you're always getting the same thing. And if you didn't get enough sleep or you exercised more, you wanted more of this. You wanted less of this. And I arrived at the same place as you, where instead of making two weeks of little vitamin baggies ahead of time, I opened my little vitamin cabinet and I pull out these ones. Oh, today I'm going to skip that one. And today I'm going to take extra of that one because I generally know what they do. And the intuition approach seems to work better. And more importantly, it prevents your system from getting used to always having the same thing every day. Because you can turn off your own production of antioxidants if you're always taking the same antioxidants at the same time every day. So mix it up. Like mixing things up is a great idea. Yeah, yeah. When you get to probiotics, then yeah. it's even crazier because, you know, apparently in the gut, there are hundreds of different uh, bacteria. Most probiotic supplements have, you know, maybe at most 10 different sets of 10. You know, how do you know which ones do what, which ones you need, which ones yeah. you don't? And one of the, the funny things is that the bacteria that thin people have more of and fat people have less of, you can't even buy that. Huh. You have to feed it. And the way you feed it is with polyphenols. Ah. So funny. What's the highest polyphenol beverage that most people consume on a daily basis? That would be coffee and tea and chocolate and bright green vegetables and dark green vegetables and things like that. So all of a sudden you're like, wait, is this healthy for me because it has antioxidants or is it healthy for me because it feeds bacteria that turn off brain fog? Like people haven't figured that out yet. But when you look at things like Terry Wall's diet, where she was minding my mitochondria, which um, Terry and I agree on so many things, even intellectual stimulation, I I, I was just awed to meet her. Uh, And I highly recommend her book as well, uh, which is uh, Minding My Mitochondria. But what, what I would say there is we don't really know all that. But you do know when I do these things, I either feel better or I feel worse. One thing that I would love to see people do more of is to track how am I doing? And, yeah. and you can either just ask yourself that, but the little app on my phone, Sleep Cycle, in the morning, how, how do you feel when you wake up? And it gets your heart rate. And also I track like probably 40 things now before I go to bed. I'm like, I did this, I did this, I didn't do this. I, and I just check these off really quick. So I end up having a graph and it, the data is kind of dirty, but it's better than what I had before. So I've found that that kind of a practice really helps but what would be really cool and what is happening is when all that data is uploaded and you mix it together. Like, hmm, yeah. everyone who has honey before sleep, like there's a 70% chance that you'll have more deep sleep if you do that. Maybe we should do a double blind trial and do corn syrup versus honey. That kind of thing is possible, but no one's going to pay for it unless it's like a charity kind of thing. Yeah. So citizen science and crowd yeah. science, I think, is the other area is, I mean, those sort of gross health variables, like how, how's my energy today? How's my mood? That's critically important, really good. What's really, really important, though, is our deeper sort of psychological states. And those most people are not even aware of. Uh, 
I'm a big fan of Robert Trivers' model of consciousness. Do you do you know that one? Explain uh, it for people listening. So, so Robert Trivers is one of the um, preeminent um, uh, evolutionary psychologists, evolutionary biologists, who in the 70s figured out the sort of evolutionary basis for things like sibling rivalry and the structure of the family. And he has this amazing and radical view of what consciousness is. We tend to think of our consciousness, the part of us that speaks and you know connects with the world. That is us. Uh, and that's the seat of the soul. His view is, no, 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 no. That's the public relations department of the mind. (laughs) And that its job is to basically paint a very positive but distorted picture uh, yeah. of, uh, of yourself to the rest of the world. But you want to make decisions based on incorrect information. So you need another part of the brain which actually knows the truth. But you can't let that information leak into the public relations department. So you need these active repressive mechanisms. And so you get the complex structure of the human mind, which has many, many parts. We think of ourselves as sort of unitary beings, whereas in fact, we all have multiple parts, some of which come to the fore at different, different times. And and most of us are not even aware of it. Yeah. And so there have been these practices, certainly meditative practices or internal family systems therapy sort of treats the different parts of a single mind as members of a family and tries to do sort of family therapy within a single person. Uh, that's the sort of idea of that. Well, just, um, I want to remind people, um, you are an expert in artificial intelligence. You have PhDs in physics and you're not in that job after what you just said. Okay. Like, like, <laughs> I agree with what you're saying. I've, I've seen huge results in people from internal family systems therapy. Therapy, but the idea that there's these different virtual machines in your head that are unaware of each other but are fighting with each other, it's, it's accurate. This is what's going on all the time, and it's totally invisible to you. Yeah. And how could it possibly be invisible? You know, uh, psychologists are discovering more and more things that we think we're aware of, but we're not. One, one I'm really fascinated by is, you know, your eyes are always moving around. They do make saccades. And uh, these psychologists created a display that when they tr- detected that you're moving your eyes in one of these saccades, they changed the display. And sometimes very, very strikingly, like there'll be a red parrot and you move your eyes and they change it to a green parrot. And uh, so, you know, watching from the outside, this is a major change. From the perspective of the person doing this, their eye movement, they often don't see it. They think nothing has changed. And so somehow our perceptual capability has these blind spots, these things where it's the you know, very blatantly obvious aspect of reality that we don't, we're not aware of and we don't even see. And I think looking at our own cognitive structure and our own mental, uh, you know, particularly this business of having multiple parts that have different goals and differing opinions, which most, of, most of us are totally blind to that. And it requires special techniques and special tools to begin to have some awareness of, oh, the reason I ate a whole gallon of ice cream yesterday, you know, <laughs> was this. And, uh, you know, there's a part of me that thinks that's terrible and another part of me that really wants it. And, oh, wow, you know. And so tracking that, tracking how the deeper aspects of your mental state are changing over time, I think, I think that's really the level at which uh, we can, you know, 26% of the population has a diagnosable mental illness every year in this country right now. Um, major anxiety levels, major depression levels, pretty big, you know, things on narcissism and sociopathy. And, uh, so we have major, major health, mental health issues going on. And the tools for dealing with it are pretty, pretty crude. It, it's funny that the self-awareness thing, I, I've seen this, people say, you know, I, I, I'm a good and kind person. 
And, and then you turn around and you're like, look at how you're treating other people. Like, like you know, you're constantly cutting them down. You know, you're an internet troll. Uh, you know, you're attacking people's credibility and all this. And like, that's actually not how good and kind people work. But if the internal message is like, I'm good and kind, yet I'm walking around completely unaware that I'm not acting that way. It It's fascinating to me to understand where do the blind spots come from? Yeah. And, and they come from parts of the brain that are faster than our conscious thought. Right? And we know that those pieces are there. So I'm looking to artificial intelligence and to just data, especially brainwave data and potentially some of the things like from HRV sense, just changes in heart rate variability from minute to minute that you don't normally feel. Those are going to illuminate for us, A, that what we're talking about here actually does happen because I think the cat's out of the bag from my perspective, it does happen. But also B, well, what do, what do you do about it? And how do those systems work? And the more you push on those systems, the scarier it is, which is also fascinating because those systems are there to keep us alive. Absolutely. Right. So uh, when I do like the 40 years of Zen program with clients, I've never had someone not either throw up or cry wow. in the course of seven days of having a lie detector say, nope, you're, you're still. And when they stop self-deceiving, what you find is is absolutely terrifying and wow. like okay maybe that's the same thing that happens in vipassana maybe it's slightly different i you know I, I don't know but the data that's coming out of this where we have hundreds of thousands of people with low-cost eeg machines i have a muse headset now so in a few years i think some of the, the things that you've already studied and things you've worked on things that we know work but we don't know why they work we're gonna have enough data to actually show even more that they work, but we're also going to show the underlying mechanisms and that's going to change a lot, hopefully not just in the field of marketing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think marketing will be the first, but you know, Doug Engelbart, uh, the man who invented the mouse, and he had a vision back in 1962, which has sort of come to be, you know, there's AI, artificial intelligence, but there's also IA, intelligence augmentation. And these are tools which help the human sort of come to their to their best and uh, have greater self-awareness through things like neurofeedback. Or um, I've been really fascinated by um, optical ways of measuring neural activity. And, right. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, that it, optical ways. So, like looking at eyes, you're talking about. Oh, well, no, there was a lot with that. But no, uh, using uh, actually measuring, using infrared LEDs and detectors, uh, they're getting, you know, actually much finer resolution than you can get with an EEG system. And uh, potentially you get headsets based on that technology uh, that are, you know, could be very cheap and very easy to use without a lot of the complexity of EEG systems. Okay. Uh, I'm excited to, uh, I'm excited to see more about that. It's actually an area I don't know much about. Oh, yeah. Just has been coming out recently, uh, a team. I can send you some links. To oh, please do. In fact, I'll, I'll post the links up as well. If there's one more thing I wanted to ask, uh, and this is a final question that's been on every podcast. I know you've heard the podcast. You probably ought to know the question. Yeah, yeah. Top three things, top three recommendations for people who want to perform better. So as an AI guy, as a human being, as a guy who's lost 50 pounds, and as a guy who's studied all sorts of bizarre psychological things. Well, I would say the, the health things, but you already know all that and everybody already knows that. So I would say the three things which probably most people have not explored are nonviolent communication, internal family systems therapy, and bone dialogue. Okay. That's awesome. And those are answers I've never heard before on the podcast. So after 120 something episodes, awesome. 
Steve, where can people learn more about what you're doing? So my website is steveomohundro.com, or if you're interested in the issues around the positive AI, uh, that's uh, selfawaresystems.com. Awesome. Thank you for being on the show today. Totally appreciate it. And we'll post links to all the stuff we talked about on the show notes that are going to be on the Bulletproof site. Sounds great. Thanks a lot. One of the things that makes you most Bulletproof is the ability to focus. I don't mean focus for a minute or a few seconds. I mean focus for as much time as you need to focus to get the job done. For that, I've trained myself using the Upgraded Focus Brain Trainer. And it's available on UpgradedSelf.com. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.